0: scripture reading is from Acts 11 and 13. Please follow along as I read. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined every one according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Mananine, a long, lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This is the Word of God.
1: I've always loved this text of Scripture because it tells us about a brand new church. And we're a brand new church, and, but this is a brand new church that was very different than any other church around. And, you know, we're kind of like that too. How many churches do you know that meet outdoors? Not very many, right? And I bet you don't know very many that meet in a saloon, right? I've always liked the Antioch church because it was an unusual church doing some unusual things that God used in some very dynamic Ways. And we're thankful that although I don't think we'll ever make it into Holy Scripture, God has used us as an unusual church doing some relatively unusual things. And we are excited to be a part of something fresh and new and beautiful that God seems to be doing uh, in this community and around the world. So, this church at Antioch is a very significant church. It's one of my favorite churches in the Bible. And it's our opportunity this morning to take a look at that church and to learn some things that will help us us in our own lives and ourselves as a church uh, as we seek to follow uh, follow Jesus. Now, if you're new among us, what we are doing is we're studying the book of Acts together, and so we've just moved our way towards this text here in Acts, and we're finding how the church has grown from that very small group of about 120 followers of Jesus outside uh, on a hill in Jerusalem. Uh, where the Holy Spirit came down and this massive movement developed so that within a dozen or 15 years, we now meet this church which has moved far beyond its first city of Jerusalem and has been traveling in all different directions, and we've been following its travel northwards and westward. Ultimately, it will go all the way towards Rome where the book ends. So Acts tells us about the unleashing of the church of Christ, the unleashing of the church from that very small group spread across the world so that, in fact, they could literally change the landscape of their culture over the course of a few generations. And so, we're looking at this book of Acts to learn some things, and so, I, uh, and so I, want, uh, I want us to take a look in particular at this church there in Antioch. Janice read for you the story of Antioch. It's found in various places, but in the two texts that she read out of Acts chapter 11 and then again in Acts chapter 13. So, let's take a look, first of all, at the context of the Antioch Ecclesia. Now, as you know, the word for church that was translated church in the Bible is not really the right word. It should be gathering or assembly, but it it got translated into church, which meant like a kirk, a building out of the Latin Vulgate. So, when I use the word Ecclesia, I'm really using the word church. The Ecclesia in Antioch, what can we learn about that 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 early church the context in the first place antioch you would know was a very first of all a very cosmopolitan city a cosmopolitan city it was a massive city uh, away from rome it was considered the third leading city in the roman empire It was very wealthy, very cosmopolitan, very proud of its identity within the Roman Empire. It was a significant urban center from which the gospel could go and in fact did go global. It was a very wealthy city, a very uh, large city by those standards. It was an important city. Edward Gibbon, when he wrote about the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, had this to say about it. He said, fashion was the only law Pleasure the only pursuit, and the splendor of dress and furniture were the only distinction of the citizens of Antioch. The arts of luxury were honored. The serious and manly virtues were the subject of ridicule, and the contempt for female modesty and reverent age announced the universal corruption of the capital of the East. Sounds a little bit like a description of 21st century America, doesn't it? A little bit? Yeah, listen to what he said. Fashion was the only law, pleasure the only pursuit, the splendor of dress and virtue the only distinction. Yeah, Antioch was a very cosmopolitan city, a very what we would call a very idolatrous city. There were lots of different competing divinity, uh, spoken and unspoken. It was a very uh, wealthy city. And into this group came some very nondescript, poor, non-professional people who just happened to have a deep and devout love for Jesus. So, we see that it was, first of all, the, uh, the, under the context of Antioch City uh, Ecclesia, it was a cosmopolitan city, and then secondly, it was a pioneering church, a pioneering church. Listen to what it says. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, we just read right over that and don't think how utterly significant that sentence is. See, what we see are two things about this church. Number one, this church was started by lay people. It was not started by the apostles. It was not... Started by the religious elite, it was started by just average people. And as they were, they ended up going into Antioch, and they began to tell people about the Lord Jesus. This was not a church started with a, a funding committee, a, a, a business plan. Well, it was kind of like our church. You know, we just sort—I of, mean, I am an ordained minister. I guess we're different in that regard. But uh, we just had a handful of people that kind of come and say, "Wouldn't it be great if we had a church? Why can't we have a church right down in heart?" the heart of of Cave Creek. This was a church started by a few lay people. Notice what it says, too, secondly about that church. Lay people started at number two. It was filled with Gentiles. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to you, but this is the first time in history that that had ever happened. Notice what it said. It said people had been speaking the word to no one except Jews, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. Hellenists would be the word for Greeks. He spoke, they spoke to the Greeks, talking to them about the Lord Jesus. Now, there were some times already we've seen, if you've been walking with us through this book, when occasionally the gospel has gone beyond Jewish boundaries. You know, it went to an African eunuch a few chapters before just in the preceding chapter it went to a roman centurion these were both and it went a little bit earlier to some samaritans these were both god-fearing individuals they were not jewish but they had a great respect for the jewish law they followed the one god of the universe that the jews followed they were already doing that but here in this text we find them walking into a very pagan environment Not God-fearers, as we might think of it, but people who are just rank and file, worshiping the gods of their day, and these people who are men from Cyprus and Cyrene, not ordained clergy, are just going in there, and they just can't help themselves. They've got to let everybody know about the Lord Jesus. They were there because of the persecution, which had happened to Stephen. That's described in the sixth chapter a little bit earlier. That's how we know the apostles were not there, because the apostles remained in Jerusalem. And now we see that these people are going up there, and they're starting the very first church made up of Greeks and not Jews. The very first church made up primarily and perhaps virtually exclusively, although not entirely, of people who would not have claimed any... uh, interest in Judaism, the, Jew, the Jewish uh, uh, one God of the universe. This was a pioneering church, a significant church. And so, we see that this church began, and it says in verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. What had they been preaching? They had been preaching the Lord Jesus. And as they preached Jesus, not Caesar as Lord, there were those who said, I want to respond to that message, even though it was an entirely non-Christian environment, an entirely… an environment which others might have said, there's no way the gospel will go there. These people were not limited by that, and indeed the gospel did go so let's see then some characteristics. Secondly, of this Antioch church, there are numerous ones. I had a hard time limiting myself to only seven. So we're gonna we're gonna take a look quickly at seven of these uh, of these characteristics. Number one, the first characteristic of the Antioch ecclesia is that it was they used a non-conventional approach a non-conventional approach. I've already alluded to that in that these people hadn't gone to seminary. They didn't know that you're supposed to go just to the Jews. They were just so excited about Jesus that they wanted to share about Jesus in every setting that they could. They didn't go into synagogues. They went on the marketplace. They went in all different kinds of places. I like this point because it gives me some confidence as I think about our own unconventional approach. Some people have asked me, when are we going to have a real church? I'm thinking... Isn't this already a real church? Yeah. And why should we become like every other church on the block when we're already so unique, right? Why not have a church in a place where people already like to go? I mean, not you because you're all good Christians, right? You know, know, at the Buffalo Chip Saloon, this is a way of embracing our community. And these people in that day had used a non-conventional approach. They were breaking the rules. This is really crazy to me because without going to details, let me just say this way. If you knew me well, you would know I am the last person to be preaching with a cowboy hat and boots in the back of a saloon. The last worst. if you knew what my background is really like, and if you, you would think, no, that would never be, the, but that's part of the humor and joy of God. God delights in using unexpected people to do things, you know. Uh, he calls Moses when he's too old to go back to Egypt, right? He's not eloquent enough. God delights in doing that. God delights in using his own non-conventional approaches. And this was a church that used an entirely non- conventional approach. No one had ever given them permission to do that. They just began to gather people. What did they do? They just told people about the Lord Jesus, and a number of people believed and turned to the Lord, and they began to meet together, and uh, they just had a non-conventional approach. Well, one of the things that's been such a blessing for us in the two years we've been meeting as a church family is that God has honored our own non-conventional approach. There was no master plan, no big idea, no no sense of, well, what if we did this? It just sort of happened, you know? It just kind of happened. I happened to know Larry because I had done a few things for him before. I said to him, do you mind if we have an Easter gathering at your, at, at your facility? There's no Easter service here in Cave Creek. Maybe we could do that. And we had a group, about six or seven people, maybe eight by then, who wanted to be a part of this thing. So let's just have a public meeting. Uh, we'll advertise it. The very first thing we ever did at the church, as a church, was to be in the spring parade called Fiesta Days. Most of you didn't even know we existed back then, and probably only a a few of you were even there that day. We had to recruit other people to say, will you come and be on this float with us? And what we did at that, we passed around some candy, and we said we're going to have a community sunrise service on Easter, which was about two weeks away or something to that effect. And that's just kind of how this church thing began. Larry said, sure, you can come. And then as we talked to Larry, he said, "Uh, you know, you could meet here every week. I said, Really? let's do it then, you know? And so we've been meeting here every week, and he said, as he is fond of saying, you know, I make sinners out of them all week. Least I can do is let you try to make saints out of them on Sunday, (laughs) you know? He tells that line to everybody. And so we began to meet, and a few of you were here uh, at that very first Easter service, and then we began to meet after the service. You know, we, we just started to meet there in the saloon, and You know, again, there were about 8 or 10 or 12 of us. We had all 80 at that first service for the Easter deal, and then, you know, 10 or 12 of us that were coming. And then when the fall rolled around, we moved back outdoors, and somehow God's just been giving opportunities for us to serve this community. It is a treasure we should not take lightly, a treasure that we should not take lightly. We can begin to feel ownership of this whole thing, and yet it's never ours even to begin with. We need to give ourselves away, in the way that God has given Himself away to us. That's one of the temptations. Something happens, and you sort of institutionalize it. This is the way we're going to do it. And they, you know, no, give ourselves a non-conventional approach. These people did that. Number two, a Christ-centered focus. A Christ-centered focus. I love what it says there. It says uh, there were some of them who coming to the and, they, and it says they preaching the Lord. Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was on them, and a great number of who believed turned to the Lord. They didn't preach doctrine. They didn't preach denominations. They didn't preach Judaism. Everybody else thought that in order to become a Christian, you had to become a Jew. Everybody else thought that. Most everybody else anyway. Read the Bible. Read the story. You'll see. This was very unusual. And yet, they just said, I don't know about all that stuff. All I know is that Jesus came to the earth. He died and he rose again. He's risen from the dead. New creation began on resurrection day and he gives his Holy Spirit to those who will respond in faith to him. I don't know all the other stuff, but I think Jesus would be someone you'd be interested to. And sure enough, there are a lot of people who said, I want in on that. It was a Christ-centered focus. You know, here at our church, the Church with the Chip, you know, we try to stay very, what we call, Christocentric. Just keep it about Jesus. Keep it about the gospel. And if our church is doing what I hope it's doing, I would hope that those who are part of our church family would be able to have some differing theological opinions about other aspects of the Christian faith. You know, Christians are good at fighting with each other, right? They are. But let's just agree that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh who gave His life as a sacrifice for our sins and rose from the dead and will someday return to remake this world, let's agree that, that's, that salvation is not a, a reward to achieve but a gift to receive from His grace. Let's agree about that. And then away from the, uh, other ways, we'll talk about some of those areas of theology that maybe sometimes we disagree about. You see, they had a Christ-centered focus. Yes, We want to have that as well. And I think God honored that, that their message was a message about the Lord Jesus. Now, we hear the word Lord Jesus, and we think of Lord Jesus Christ, those are all just names that fly off of our tongues way too easily. When they said the Lord Jesus, they were speaking to people who understood that there was a different Lord, and you know what it was? Caesar is Lord Now, imagine this. Nobody knows anything about your story about Christianity. What you know is that you're a Roman city. You're the uh, third-leading city of the empire, and you've been taught that Caesar is Lord, and you're proud of being a citizen of Caesar's kingdom, even though you're far away from Italy. Caesar is Lord. And all of a sudden, here come these Jewish people, because the evangelists were Jews, and they come in, and they say to you, you know, I know they say Caesar is Lord, but actually... Jesus is Lord. Oh Jesus, who's Jesus? Is he a military commander? Oh no, he's not a military commander. Uh, uh, well, where is he? Well, <laughs> well, it's a little hard to tell what happened to him. But actually, what happened is this: Jesus was killed. Oh, he was killed. How could he be Lord? Well, and how was he killed? Well, he was killed by. Well, <laughs> he was killed by the Roman <laughs> country, the emperor. He was a criminal. Wait a minute. You're talking about insurrection here, aren't you? Well, not really, because this was Jesus. He didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead, and He is living. And 500 of us saw Him, and in faith in Him, we now have His Spirit within our hearts. And Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord. Imagine that. An alternative community right under the arms, eyes of the Roman Empire that's the way it's supposed to be. In every community around the world, there are these small communities who say, Jesus, not Wall Street, is Lord. Jesus, not political ideology, is Lord. Jesus, not America, is Lord. Jesus, you see, these are not the gods of money or sex or power that are so prevalent in our world today. Jesus is Lord. It's a Christ-centered focus. And those who have found the the, uh, emptiness of trusting in all these other so-called gods can find in Jesus the crucified, resurrected Savior who gave His life, a true Lord to whom they can give their lives. A Christ-centered focus. Number three, a grace-filled atmosphere a grace-filled atmosphere. I love this story here. We talked about this part of it a couple weeks ago, so I can't talk much about it. But you see what happens is, it says right there in the 22nd verse, the news of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So the word travels. Did you hear what's going on up there in Antioch? You see what's going on? It's a church filled with non-Jewish people, with Gentiles, and they're following Jesus. And as far as we know, they're not converting to becoming Jews. This would have been quite surprising to those people. So it says they sent Barnabas up there. We studied Barnabas a while back, so if you weren't here back then, sorry, but Barnabas was a cool dude. Look him up in the Bible. He was a guy who encouraged everybody. He's an unsung hero in the Christian church. You should know about him and look him up sometime uh, when you look in the Bible. And you see right here, Barnabas did two things. One is he came up there and he encouraged the church, and then he went and found his friend Saul. But see what Barnabas saw. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. See, they're not in a culture which affirms their Christian faith. They're in a culture altogether different. And he says, I've sensed the grace of God here. Hang on to it. Hold on to it. He encouraged them. As we talked about it a few weeks ago, we saw that Barnabas did not see the mess. He overlooked the mess. He saw the grace. Because this was a grace-filled atmosphere and I hope that when you come into the church of the Chip, that you have this sense of joy and grace, and that it's okay to not be perfect here. To have difficulties in our lives as we come together, I believe that the Antioch Church' its grace filled atmosphere is an important characteristic because there's a lots of condemnation, and too many churches are known for condemning people. We need to speak the truth, we're called to truth and grace. The grace filled atmosphere. He saw it and encouraged them. He didn't say, time out. This is not real church. You got to do this and that. He saw what was the grace of God and affirmed them. All right, the next thing that we see in this story is we see the fourth, I think it's the fourth characteristic, a scriptural foundation, a scriptural foundation. It says he exhorted them and, uh, and then it says, so Bar- verse 25, Barnabas went to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the Ecclesia and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Yes, if you call yourself a Christian, you got the Antioch church to thank for it. That's where they first started to get called Christian because they're Christians, followers of the Messiah, a different Messiah, that Messiah who was dead and resurrected, Jesus, the Christ, okay? Um, and, but what we see here is that he brought... And, uh, Saul into the church, and for a whole year they met and taught a great many people. You see, although we want to reach out as far as we can to as many as we can, it's important that we teach people the truths of Scripture. That's why when you come here every week, we open up our Bibles, and we try to talk about what the Bible said then and what it means for us today. We need to have a good scriptural foundation. There are way too many of us, even devout Christian people who just sort of import uh, the Bible onto our preconceived notions of what life is supposed to like. Because our culture tells us that it's great to have a lot of money. We look for Bible verses that tell us it's great to have a lot of money, right? Our culture, we let our culture determine. The thing is, the lens we need to use is the lens of Scripture. We should interpret culture through the lens of Scripture, not the reverse. Do you see how easy it is to do that? It's easy to interpret Scripture through the lens of culture. No, these people who had no history to look back on, no awareness of the big story, no awareness of the Jewish story that Jesus was the ultimate Messiah for, they had to be taught the foundation because there was a lot that they didn't know. And in our culture today, We need to take seriously the need to become students of the Scripture so that we can build a scriptural foundation for our lives. That was something very important in that church. The next characteristic that we see in that church is that church had a generous spirit. A generous spirit. Now listen to this that's going on here. Verse 27. Now in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place during the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brother living in Judea. And this they did, sending it by the elder, to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now, maybe you missed what's going on here. Agabus comes in, and he predicts there's going to be a famine, not just over Jerusalem, but over the whole land. Everybody is going to suffer with this famine. And these people are so generous that when they heard that story, they thought, what about our brothers in Jerusalem? we got to take an offering for them. Do you see how revolutionary that is? They were going to be suffering too. The famine was going to come to them too. But they took an offering. They respected their spiritual heritage there in Judea. They thought, we are a wealthy church. We have resources. Let's be generous and send an offering to our brothers in Judea. And so they did by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And it is true that one way you can tell, is it a grace-filled church? Is this question, is it a generous church? Is it generous? Do we live with open hands for our time for our resources, for our love, for our affection, for our relationships? Or do we close in? Do we have a scarcity approach? Or do we have an abundance approach? You see, when, when, when we have an abundance approach to our lives, that generosity bleeds out and serves others. I encourage you to be generous with your time, your resources, your affection, your relationships, Bring people in. Don't squeeze people out. The church was never meant to be such an isolated community that you can't get into it. It's meant to have a generous spirit. And so they took an offering and sent an offering down there to uh, Jerusalem. Generosity is a characteristic of a great church. Now we have to skip to the 13th chapter. We'll quickly, quickly to get some of the extra other characteristics. And the other thing that we see is that they had, and this is beautiful to me, a multi-ethnic leadership. They had a multi-ethnic leadership. A little time has passed, and now we see there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, see the importance of teaching. And they're listed, the most important first. Barnabas, we know him already. Then Simeon, who was called Niger. The word Niger means black. So Simeon was, all commentators say, was a black man, okay, as a key teacher in their church. Then Lucius of Cyrene, also from North Africa, but probably more Arab in his background than, than black. That the area of Cyrene would have been more uh, Arabic than uh, black. Then we have Manaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch. We don't know anything about him except that this guy grew up and lived with… He was part of the upper crust of society. He grew up in the household of Herod the Tetrarch, okay? So very well to do. Then we have Saul. It's beautiful to see that this church, again, it's the generous spirit. It didn't just say, okay, we started this church for all you Gentiles, but us Jewish people are going to be the bosses here, right? Barnabas and Saul were Jewish, right? But Barnabas and Saul had a role, but they were one of five key leaders in that church, And the other three were of different nationalities, different ethnic backgrounds, very different people. But what? United as a new man, as a new family together in Christ, and their leadership reflected that. I think it's tragic that in our churches we often organize so much around ethnic identities and not about our true identity as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's something that the world, I think, can say, I don't get it. You say we're all together, but you seem to isolate and separate yourselves. We have to grow in that area. And the last thing that I will say is that they had a spirit led family, a spirit led family. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said to them, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And thus we have the beginning of the Apostle Paul's fabulous missionary journey. His home church was there in Antioch. He later became His name was called Paul. He was called Saul back then. And he and Barnabas went around, and what they really did is went up and tried to start Antioch churches all around the Mediterranean seaboard. Yeah. You see, a church is meant to be led by the Spirit and sending people off in the Spirit, worshiping the Lord and letting the Holy Spirit talk to them. Well, we want to be that kind of family too, don't we? We want to be a Spirit-led family, a family of people who surrender to Jesus and allow His Spirit to work in and through us. And perhaps you're here today, and you would say, you know, this story about Jesus is something compelling to me too. Well, you see, you can respond in faith to that story as well. You can respond by trusting in Him. Or perhaps you would say to me, you know, Steve, I like all this stuff, but I've got to admit, my life doesn't look anything like that. I'm a follower of Jesus, but I really would have to say Jesus is not Lord. Well, let's get back to the basics here. Let's surrender ourselves to Jesus. Let's have a Christ-centered focus, a grace-filled atmosphere, a scriptural foundation, a generous spirit, and a spirit-led family. Respond in faith to what Jesus has done for you because as he laid down his life for you, he said to us, we should lay down our lives for the world. We're coming into a very exciting season as a church with Wild West days and Thanksgiving and Christmas and all the stuff going on. Let's not just approach it selfishly for us. Let's go at it in a way of serving our community. Will you do that with me? Great. Let's have prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you that Jesus lived generously and gave his life for us. And it was a, a sacrificial death that he made, a horrific death. But in that, he identified with us and offered to us forgiveness. Help us to be like those men from Cyprus and Cyrene, not worried about all the details, but just seeking to love and share Jesus with anyone we can, however we can, in whatever way we can. And may we respond in faith to you. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. (laughs)